If you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to First Kings chapter 22, the end of Ahab's life, with the Word of God open before us. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, You have established Your throne in the heavens, and Your sovereignty rules over all. You nullify the counsel of the nations. You frustrate the plans of the peoples, but the counsel of the Lord shall stand forever, the plans of Your heart from generation to generation. There are portions of Scripture, O Lord, that confront us with the glory of the majesty of Your throne. And we ask You, Lord, this evening as we turn to this one, that You'd pour out Your Holy Spirit and give me strength and open the eyes and the hearts of Your people, enlightening us, O Lord, that we be filled with the knowledge of Your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to You, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. For those who know God are strong and do exploits. And we pray You would grace our lives with such knowledge. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please then, listen carefully. This is the Word of the living God, 1 Kings 22. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, "'Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet?' And do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. He said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people are as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into your hand, into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. You'll see here there are two throne rooms pictured in this passage, the one on earth we've just seen, we'll see the one in heaven in a moment. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenaiah, or Chenaanah, made for himself horns of iron, and said, Thus says the Lord, 
With these you shall push the Assyrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with, are, with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall Ramoth-Gilead? And one said to another one thing, and another said another thing. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chena'anah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I come home in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear this, all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. But you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded his 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It's surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot, 
And about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did in the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. There's a slow, grinding inevitability about this chapter, this final chapter in Ahab's life. This is now the third and last time Ahab receives a judgment from the Word of God. And of course, the amazing thing is that he continues to ignore it. It reminds me of a story they said about two Irishmen watching a John Wayne movie, and John Wayne is galloping on the horse as fast as he could and there's a cliff coming up, a big ravine. And one of the Irishmen turns to his friend and says, I'll bet you 50 pounds that he rides over the end of the cliff and is smashed to smithereens in the rocks and dies. And his friend said, that's John Wayne. That'll never happen to John Wayne. So the money's exchanged, and the, they watch the movie. And sure enough, John Wayne rides off the cliff and crashes down on the rocks and is killed stone dead. And as his friend hands the money over, the other Irishman feels guilty and says, I have to confess, he says, I've seen the movie before. And his friend said, I have as well, he said, but I didn't think he'd make the same mistake twice. <laughs> and in reality, it's a little bit like that here. Ahab makes the same mistake again and again and again. He doesn't even, he isn't able to avoid the trap even when God points it out to him. He's enslaved to believing the lie even when God tells him it's a lie. Ahab is enslaved, and this grinding inevitability takes over him. I've said this before, and young people listen to me especially. Your choices form your character. The choices you make determine the kind of person you're going to become. You become what you repeatedly choose to do. You make your choices, and then they return the favor. They make you. And the grand lesson of Ahab's life is that you cannot ignore the Word of God without becoming the kind of person who does that. And that's the kind of habit that's easy to make and very, very hard to break. That's the kind of man Ahab has chosen to be in life, and it's the kind of man Ahab will be in death. I'm reminded of a comment by Tony Blair in his political autobiography, A Journey. He's describing political figures who come a cropper in life, and he says this about them. It is in the nature of politics 
that all the elements that ultimately bring about the downfall are there from the outset, albeit in mild form. Time merely enlarges and strengthens them. This is the case with Ahab. Let's work through the passage together. First of all, let's think about the historical context there in the first four verses. I've got to remember now Ramoth Gilead, right? So, we're in the time of the divided kingdom. After Solomon, Rehoboam, you remember, makes a stupid decision. Maybe more about that later in the sermon if there's time. He makes a stupid decision to listen to the advice of the young bucks over the wise elders, and the kingdom divides. He takes the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jeroboam I takes the northern ten tribes of Israel, and the capital is in Samaria. And that's the piece of real estate that Ahab currently controls, right? We're in the period of the divided time, or the, sorry, the divided kingdom. Now, Ramoth Gilead, which is integral here in these verses, is a strategic city on the east side of the Jordan River. Remember, most of the most of the promised land, most of the significant real estate is on the west bank of the Jordan River. Ramoth Gilead is on the east bank, and it's kind of a, a frontier town that borders Syria and some of the enemies out to the east, and it's kind of a buffer zone, if you like. Also, it's one of the three designated cities of refuge that you'd run to if you were a, a manslayer and trying to escape the avenger of blood. And there are three of those cities are on the east bank of the Jordan, and one of them was Ramoth Gilead. So it had some spiritual significance, but at the risk of understatement, I don't think that was probably forefront in Ahab's mind. Now, by the time this chapter, Ramoth Gilead is in, under the control of the Syrians or the Arameans. Now, remember, go back a couple of chapters, and you find uh, Ahab at war with Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. You remember at the end of, the, of, the, of that chapter, Ahab beats him at the prophecy and help of God, but he doesn't slaughter him. He doesn't put him to the sword. He spares him for political and economic reasons, and God judges Ahab again. That was the second time Ahab falls under the judgment of God's Word. And the agreement that they, would, they made, Ahab and Ben-Hadad, was that all of the cities Ben-Hadad's father had captured in previous wars would be handed back over to Israel, or back over to Judah, and one of those was, ben, was back over to Israel, sorry, and one of those was Ramoth Gilead, and that, well, Ben-Hadad seems to have had a bad case of the slows, hadn't handed that city back over again. And evidently, that, was, that annoyed Ahab. It got in his craw and stuck there. And even though they'd enjoyed three years of peace, Ahab wanted it back. And to get it back, he knew he needed the military help of Jehoshaphat, his estranged kind of the brothers in the south. And so in this chapter, Jehoshaphat, who was by and large a good king, he was the fourth king of the southern kingdom from Rehoboam, and the son of Asa. And Jehoshaphat feared the Lord. He Remember, he he instigated spiritual reforms and removed many of the high places or the idols. He didn't remove the high places, actually, but he removed many of the idols and pushed things forward in a positive direction like his father. But despite his piety, you remember, Josaphat entered into what was at the very least a questionable alliance with Ahab in this passage, an alliance that was cemented by the marriage of 
his son Jehoram to Athaliah, the wicked daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And if you kind of fast forward about 25 years or so, Athaliah will try to wipe out the Davidic line in Judah. Ralph Davis' sermon of that was called, he preached it at Christmas time one year, it was called um, The Woman Who Tried to Destroy Christmas. Uh, and it's Athaliah. That's another sermon, though. So the battle then is to try and get Ramoth Gilead, and Jehoshaphat has yoked himself to wicked King Ahab in the north, which was not his smartest decision. But as we will see, Jehoshaphat always wasn't the sharpest tack in the box as you read through this chapter. So as I was reading this chapter this week, I kind of made a number of notes to hang our uh, titles, to hang our, um, our sermon on. First of all, I want you to see immutable truth. That's the first thing. When it comes to receiving guidance from the unseen spiritual realm, nothing matters more than truth. It depends, though. It does matter where that truth comes from. Does it come from heaven or does it come from hell, and do you care? That's kind of important. First of all, then, immutable truth. And under that point, we'll see it's quite… It's, it's one thing to hear truth, and it's another to have ears to hear it and a heart to understand it and a will to allow that truth to make any difference to the way you live your life, right? Mutable truth. Second thing I want you to see is irresistible sovereignty. Jim reminded us this morning there are no maverick molecules. Well, in this passage, we'll understand and hear that there are no maverick demons either. The Lord uses even the demons of hell sinlessly to fulfill His purpose. And then thirdly, we'll see unavoidable judgment. No matter how hard Ahab tries to game the system, he can't escape the judgment of God, the grinding inevitability. So first of all then, immutable truth. When it comes to receiving guidance from the unseen realm, nothing matters more than truth. And we have a number of subheadings here. First of all, the pleasant sound of deadly lies. So before Jehoshaphat goes to war, he wants to hear a word from God. Verse 5, inquire first for the word of the Lord. So far, so good. And Ahab is quite glad to oblige him, and he calls together these 400 prophets, quite a large number. And they all come together, and they're gathered in this rather impressive, um, I don't know, revival meeting, and they're prophesying, and they're all agreed. Unity. But I'm reminded of Gurnall's famous observation, unity without truth is no better than conspiracy. But nonetheless, they, he says, shall I go up to battle against Ramoth Gilead? And they all say, go up to the, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, Jehoshaphat uh, smells a rat, right? He, he understands it's one thing to have a word from the unseen realm, but it matters whether that word comes from heaven or hell. And he kind of has a sense and so does Ahab, we'll see later on. I think there's something fishy here, and it's almost funny. And Jehoshaphat says, okay, these are lots of guys, and they're very impressive. Um, but do you, do you have a prophet who actually knows anything about Yahweh or not? And Ahab says, well, there's one, but I don't like him very much. Why? Well, he never has anything good to say about me. That's the wrong question, by the way. You know, when you hear a sermon how do I feel after the sermon is never the question you want to ask. The question you want to ask is, was it true? That's the only question that matters. But Ahab didn't like Micah because he had a bad case of the bad feelings after Micah's sermons. 
And so the king relents and calls Micaiah. But how pleasant the lies, the deadly lies of these prophets are. Ahab liked hearing them, but those lies would lead him to his death. The pleasant sound of deadly lies. Then under the first point, we'll see the second thing, the brutal nature of painful truth. I've told you this before, but a good friend of mine, David Gordon, was in the bank back in Northern Ireland and worked there for many years as a financial advisor. But his bank manager had a sign on his wall that said, you might not like what I have to say, but I promise you, when you leave, you'll not be confused. And Micaiah's sermons were a bit like that. Uh, and Ahab had had a, a plain taste of his preaching in the past. As we said, he did not like it. And so, Ahab sends for Micaiah the Nair, say, well, prophet, and in he comes. And there's this impressive picture of the king of Israel and the king of Judah sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, grand throne on earth. And Micaiah is coming. And as, he's, as they're waiting for him to make his appearance, Zedekiah, whose name means Yahweh is righteous, it's kind of, it's kind of, that's a very interesting name for a false prophet to have. He gets, he gets all dramatic. He's got these, the, the horns of a steer, uh, and, he, and he models them in iron, and he takes them, and he says to the king, very impressive, you're going to use this. It's going to be like this. You're going to push the Syrians off the field of battle until they're destroyed, which I'm sure, again, Ahab liked to here. Well, then Micah comes along, and the messenger kind of says to him, let me explain to you, Micaiah, royal protocol, okay? There's 400 prophets over here, and they're all saying one thing. And you're one little old prophet over here. Don't rock the boat. Don't say another thing. They're all saying, go up and win. Say the same thing. It's a little bit like that scene in Star Wars, you remember, whenever Chewbacca is playing space chess with R2-D2 and C-3PO. And R2's winning. I mean, what chances a hairy ape have against the almost limitless intelligence of R2-D2? And Chewbacca is groaning loudly at the, at the state of the game. And C-3PO says, you know, why are you, why are you groaning? And Han Solo says, you might want to consider that. Um, and, 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 and C-3PO says... Sir, nobody worries about upsetting a droid. And Thulu says, that's because droids don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose. Wookiees are known to do that. And C-3PO says, I see your point, sir. I suggest a new strategy, R2. Let the Wookiee win. That's exactly what the messenger is saying to Micaiah. Tell the king what he wants to hear. And it's amazing. Micaiah comes up, and as you'd expect, says, as the Lord lives... What the Lord says to me, that I will speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And Micaiah answers, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, that's amazing, right? Here's a true prophet giving a false word. What on earth is going on there? A couple of thoughts. Ahab, or Micaiah might just be telling the king what he wants to hear as a judgment. He might also be testing his sincerity. Do you really want to know what God says? Like my dad, when I asked my dad for advice as a young man, dad would always say, and I used to hate it because I knew exactly what he was going to say afterwards. He would say, Neil, what do you want me to tell you? What I really think? 
or what you want to hear. And I go, oh, no, 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 no. And to this day, I don't even need my dad to talk to me. If I've, got a, if I've got a conundrum, I'll ask my dad, dad, in my mind, and dad will say, what do I really think or what do you want to hear? And what I want to hear is often the last thing that I need to hear. And so, uh, anyway, so it's possible he's testing Ahab's sincerity, but what I actually think he's doing is actually that Micaiah wants to prove Ahab's insincerity. What do I mean? Well, all these 400 prophets are saying one thing, and Ahab is making a big show. I mean, this is the Word of God. We're going to go to battle. But deep down in Ahab's heart, Ahab knows these prophets are garbage. He knows they aren't speaking for God. He knows they're not speaking from God. He knows it's all one big fat lie, but he likes it. But when his back is to the wall, he has to admit that he knows Micaiah is true and they're all liars. It's like that passage in Romans 2 when God speaks, or Paul speaks of the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus according to my gospel. And then later in chapter 3, remember, he says, Now, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. What I think Paul is saying in those verses is on the day of judgment, everyone, from pauper to prince, will have nothing to say in their defense because their conscience will condemn them. We know who God is. We know this world is the specific, intelligent creation of God. In Christ is light and the light, sorry, in Christ is life and the life is the light of men. The very fact there is life on earth points to the fact that someone somewhere had to be originally alive because life never comes from non-life. That's what John's saying. And every human being knows that. And on the day of judgment, the atheists will bow their head and say they've always known there was a God. And Ahab has always known these prophets are liars and that Micaiah is truth. And I think Micaiah tells the king what he wants to hear to expose that. Because the king says to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He doesn't say to me, I want you to give me your negative sermons, your negative ninny, you're an Eeyore, Micaiah, these sermons you make up. No, he knew that Micaiah preaches the Word of God. He just didn't like what Micaiah had to say, and that was a problem. The pleasant sound of deadly lies, the brutal nature of painful truth, and under this first point, the third thing, the devastating clarity of God's Word. Micaiah says, and I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And Micaiah, Ahab didn't have to say, I need an interpreter. I don't understand what that means. He knew exactly what that meant. Like Mark Twain says, the parts of the Bible that terrify me are not the hard bits. 
They're the bits I understand only too clearly. And yet the king says to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but only evil? So, the importance of the immutable truth. And this passage should stop you. It should stop me. And it should make you ask yourself, and it should make me ask myself, is this book the rule and guide of your life? Is this the lamp for your feet and the light to your path? Is this the standard by which you decide good and evil, right and wrong? Are those questions you decide for yourself without God? To the law and the testimony, Isaiah says, if anyone does not speak according to these, it is because he has no light in him. The importance of immutable truth. Second thing, irresistible sovereignty. This passage teaches us the absolute sovereignty of God. We often pray with Jesus, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know He's meaning His perceptive will. We long to see the precepts of God carried out. But in reality, His will is done in hell as it is in heaven. Even the demons are under His restraining hand. He locks them in. And yes, they sin. But their sin is always directed and overruled by God, so it fulfills His holy purposes. And we'll see that later in our sermon. There are no maverick molecules, and there are no maverick demons. Micaiah turns our mind away from the, the petty throne room on earth, where Ahab and, and um, Jehoshaphat sit on their little thrones, and he lifts our eyes to the throne room of heaven. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord, Yahweh, sitting on His throne. He's sitting. He's not pacing about the throne room, nervously asking one of the um, angels to run down to the 7-Eleven and get him some Gaviscon or some um, anti-acid tum medication for his tummy. God is sitting, posture of unflapped, irresistible, irreproachable, unimpeachable sovereignty. And all the host of heaven standing beside him, God sitting, they're standing, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared a disaster for you. Now, the liberals get their pantyhose entirely twisted in this passage, because how can God be in control of the demons? How can God send a deceiving spirit into the into the mouths of Ahab's prophets. with the same God who sent an evil spirit into Saul's heart to torment him. But remember, it's one thing to deceive somebody. It's another thing to tell that person that you are deceiving him. Right? God is pointing out the deception. 
It's an act of mercy saying, Ahab, it doesn't have to end this way. These guys are lying, and they're, and they're having a spiritual experience. It's just not from heaven, it's from hell. It's a lying spirit that I have sent into these people. And that shouldn't surprise you. If, you, if, if it troubles you in the Old Testament, it will also trouble you in the New. If you turn quickly in 2 Thessalonians 2 a second, turn there with me. And we can get into a discussion of this later, though please not. Uh, I, I believe this is the Antichrist at the, at the end of time. The man of lawlessness, right? And we're told, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who perish. Why? Because they did, they refused, and I love the New American Standard Version, it actually gets the, the verb right, they refused to receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. It was something God would have given to them, but they didn't want it. Therefore, because they wouldn't receive the love of the truth, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They didn't receive the love of the truth, but they did love unrighteousness. And for that reason, if you hate truth long enough and love sin determinately enough, you better be careful because God may send, put His amen upon your decision and give you over to it, which is exactly what we see in 2 Kings 22. If you turn with me quickly, we need to be quick here, to the end of your confession of faith, at the end of your hymn, open your hymn book a second, you need to see the page here, and turn to the back, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and paragraph 5, or chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's on page 851, and read this here in verse, um, chapter 5, not verse 4, paragraph 4. Um, this is one of the finest explications of the principle of this passage you'll find anywhere outside the Bible. 851, paragraph 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in His providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. And, and that not by a bare permission. It's not that God is kind of saying, I'm going to close my eyes and let devil, you do your thing, and I'm not going to look. I'm going to pretend I can't see. No, it's not by a bare permission. Well, what kind of permission? Such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful binding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold disposition. Sorry, a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature, and not from God, who being holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. 
What this confession is saying so wonderfully is, even when the devil's doing his worst, God is surrounding His worst efforts, the devil's efforts, with His provident, such a holy and wise binding, leashing him. But the devil is never allowed to step one foot out of the plan and purpose of Almighty God, which even His hateful efforts will ultimately fulfill, like when He put Christ on the cross. So, the sin belongs only to the devil, but God handles His sin, the devil's sin, sinlessly, and all to His own holy ends. And that's what's going on here in this passage. Now, Zedekiah doesn't like that. Uh, Zedekiah, the son of Chenna'ana, came near and punches Micaiah in the cheek. Pompous fool. How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to you? And I love this. It's just like, I'd love to see the backstory to this. You'll know when the day you go into your inner chamber to hide yourself, whether there be a day when an assassin would come for him, a burglar would come for him, or one of the king's own uh, agents would come to kill him, there would come a day whenever Zedekiah would go into his inner chamber to hide himself in vain, and the penny would drop the Spirit never passed from me to you. You are the only one who ever had the Spirit, and I was full of a very different Spirit from a very different spiritual force. So, the king throws Micaiah in prison and says, leave him there until I come home. And Micaiah says, you ain't coming home. The only question is, has God spoken? And God has spoken, and the outcome is settled. Let everybody hear this, he says, as they drag him off to prison. Then lastly, inescapable judgment. The really amazing thing here is not that Ahab died. The really amazing thing is that Ahab went into battle despite the fact God already told him how it all end up. Mind-boggling. It's like that guy Prigozhin in Russia. I'm not surprised that he's dead. And we all knew it was going to go end that way. The surprising thing is he had 10 friends who were willing not only to get in a car with him, but get on a plane with him. I mean, it's just like mind-boggling. Um, I, wouldn't st- I would have him remove me from his find my friends list. I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't stand within 100. I was joking with some. We were on a road trip the other day with some friends looking at graveyards, and I was joking that if Pergosen was in this group, I would have him at the back of the group in a white van, and every other car would have... Not me, not Pergozin, not Pergozin, not him, not him, not him, and then a big target on the top of Pergozin's van saying, this is the guy, just in case there was a, a reaper drone in the heavens. So Jehoshaphat goes with Ahab into battle, and it's incredible because Ahab goes, this is what we're going to do. You go dress as a king, and I'm going to kind of, I'm going to go as a special forces guy, kind of, actually, I'm going to go in with, the, with the culinary brigade in the cooking regiment back behind the lines. And Jehoshaphat goes, that sounds like a good idea. And I can see Ahab congratulating himself, thinking, what a complete chump. And so Jehoshaphat goes into battle. And of course, everyone tries to kill him. It's obvious. He's King Ahab. But in God's providence, they find out he's not Ahab, and they leave him alone. And Ahab's going, well, I'm glad he survived, but I'm sure glad I wasn't over there dressed in royal robes. And then this archer just draws a bow at a venture, wasn't even trying to kill him, and let loose. And the arrow flew and flew and flew, and it hit Ahab in the only place it could possibly have killed him, in between his breastplate 
and the chainmail that covered his abdomen, and the rest, as they say, is history. And it's a, a devastating picture of the hardness of the human heart, the inability of human beings. It's like what Christ says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says. And that was Ahab's problem. He didn't have ears to hear. He didn't want to hear. A friend of mine is an elk hunter, and I was admiring his elk. He has an elk on his huge… I thought it was a deer, but it's like ten times the size of a deer. And this spread of antlers, my word, it's huge, majestic animal on this fireplace. And I was admiring, and he said, yes, my son shot that. And he said, we were up in, I don't know, Canada, where do you go to shoot elk? And, and there, the guide is calling the elk with a female call, and they're bow hunters. <laughs> I'd have used a rifle, they're much more effective. But um, this is huge, a thousand-pound elk, a thousand pounds, like it's huge, comes out of the undergrowth. And he thinks there's in, there's, there is a um, female in heat behind. But here's Brian with his bow bent, and the elk stands there and looks at Brian and then thinks, I wonder where the female is, and trots around, <laughs> trots around Brian and goes down the side. And of course, Brian falls in with his arrow. He's 14 yards away as he passes him at nine o'clock, and he lets loose, and the arrows go straight through the elk side, and then he's the, the, the nice trophy on the fireplace. But the elk was so focused on getting what he wanted, he couldn't see the obvious danger. That's what testosterone will do for them when they're in rut, whatever the title is or the term is. And that's what sin will do to you and me. It'll make us so mad that we can't see the obvious danger. And we'll walk right past God, right past God's Word, and right, cast, right past the warnings of God's Son as we trot off to our own destruction. And this passage is in Scripture to warn you and me not to be like Ahab. There's a madness in our heart that you and I need to be rescued from, a madness that looks at the darkness and it looks bright to us. And we need God to help us. Information is never the problem. It's the will to hear it, the heart to receive it, and the ability to carry it out. And only God can give that to us. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, the most learned man in all the land, unless a man is born again, he cannot see and therefore cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. John 3. We need the new birth. Yet at the same time, we need to be very careful. We don't walk away from God and develop the habit and become the kind of person who ignores the warnings of God's Word. I leave you with the poem from Archibald Alexander. There is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There's a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and His wrath. To pass that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It does not quench the beaming eye or pale the glow of health. The conscience will 
be still at ease, the spirit lithe and gay, that which pleases still may please and care be thrust away. But on that forehead God has set indelibly a mark, unseen by men, for men as yet are blind and in the dark. And yet doomed man's path below may bloom as Eden bloomed. He does not, did not, will not know or feel that he is doomed. He knows that he feels that all is well, and every fear is calmed. He lives, he dies. He wakes in hell, not only doomed, but damned. Oh, where is this mysterious bourne? A bourne is, I think, a Scottish word for a, a stream. Where is this mysterious bourne by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. Ye that from God depart, while it's called today, repent and harden not your heart. You don't know you've gone too far until you have. You don't know as a child when you stretch the elastic band too far and it breaks and slaps back in your eye. And walking away from God like that, you walk away from God and you can come back until you can't. And when that moment comes, it's a secret known only to God. And so the secret of not walking away too far is not to walk away at all. But every time the Holy Spirit pulls at your conscience to turn back to Christ and say, Lord, have mercy, rescue me from myself, for I am an Ahab in my heart by nature. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I need you to save me, not just from my sins. I need you to save me from myself and my constant propensity to walk away from you, Lord Jesus. And that's the lesson of Ahab's life and of his death. Let him who's ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its power to convince us and its power to convert us. Rescue us all, O God, each one from those pleasant diversions that draw us away from Christ and unite our heart from pulpit to pew to fear your name and to remember Lot's wife. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.